Hey, everybody. Bobby Africa is our guest today and does a beautiful job sharing his story vulnerably, courageously. And just before we begin, I'd like to let you know that while not explicit in nature, this episode does contain mention of violence and sexual abuse and may not be suitable for all audiences. I do hope you listen and enjoy his courage, his vulnerability, as he honestly shares his story of his life pre-process, during the process, and after the process. Welcome to Love's Everyday Radius, a podcast brought to you by the Hoffman Institute. My name is Drew Horning, and on this podcast, we catch up with graduates of the process and have a conversation with them about how their work in the process is informing their life outside of the process, how their spirit and how their love are living in the world around them, their everyday radius. Hey, everybody. Bob Africa is with us on the show today. Welcome, Bob. Thank you. Good to be here. It is great to have you. Bob, you have done so much, such a professional corporate career. Let's talk about that for a second. You've been at Solomon overseas in France, running some of their shoe departments. You've come back and run, uh, what was that next company? Kid Robot. Kid Robot ran that, and then it sold and made lots of money, and then you went to Pop Sockets. For those of you listening, these things on the back of your phones that prop up your phones, and that was nothing when you got it, and when you had it sold, you were the CEO of it, and when it sold... Yeah, I wasn't the CEO, but I was uh, Chief of Staff President, and when I started there, it was you know a couple of us, you know, I think maybe 10 employees, less than a million dollars, and you know, fast forward three, four years later, it was $250 million and $90 million in profit, and one of the fastest growing companies in the country at the time. Yeah, incredible. And you've mentored people through Techstars and lots of mentoring and supporting of leaders in the field. Yep. Yeah. Spent a lot of time, you know, just on a volunteer basis, uh, kind of the more you give, the more you get idea, um, working with, you know, leaders, uh, in startups and early revenue companies. Yeah. And then here in Colorado, you've taken all of that athletic prowess in your earlier days and brought it to the outdoors and been a prolific trail runner. There's something called the Leadville 100, where it's an out and back course, 50 miles out, 50 miles back. You were the record holder, the winner. Yep. Not of the 100. There was a competition up there called the Lead Man or Lead Woman, which encompasses all five of their races in one season, a few months. And, and a couple of those races is the 100 bike and the 100 run. And um, I've done it a few times. I've won it once and had set the record of that as well. Beautiful. And so having achieved so much in the corporate world as a dad as well to a daughter and having done so much in the running space and the outdoor mountain biking space, there was a moment in time where things weren't so great. Let's just drop right there. Where were you? What was happening in your heart and your head? Yeah, let's go. 
I have been driven all my life, I guess, going very hard professionally, personally, in the business world, in the athletic world, just fully focused on, I guess, climbing that ladder, getting the titles, gaining financial independence, the podiums, the PRs, all of that was just something that was, that's all I focused on. And I left Pop Sockets at the end of 2019. So the first time in my life that I could kind of walk away from a company or position and have a beat to think and not have to kind of worry about paying rent and hop into the next thing right away. So I had some space, you know, semi-retired call it. I'll, I'll never forget. There's, there's two things. One was I used to do quite a bit of early morning yoga and at the end of the yoga class, the teacher would always say, you know, we would end in Shavasana, corpse pose, and, you know, three, four, five minutes. And she used to say, there's not a class after this. So for those of you who have the time, you can stay. And I remember always having to, you know, get up, run, and race to work, and hop on meetings, et cetera. And I was like, I can't wait to the day that I don't have to get up. And that day came. And I was able to sit there and... Next thing I know, I got up because it just didn't give me what I thought. Then go home Tuesday morning, making coffee, looking out the window, and this massive wave came over me. Tuesday mornings were when we used to run the all-hands meetings. You know, a couple hundred people throughout the world for pop sockets that I helped facilitate. And, you know, I was one of the guys up on stage and helping to run that. And all of a sudden... That's where I w- would usually be, and I wasn't there. And this idea of like, who am I? What am I? Why am I here? What's my purpose? All of the, that just kind of hit me really hard. And all these kind of brass rings on the merry-go-round that I was grasping for, the titles, the podiums, the financial independence, all those things that I yearned for, I had achieved many of those, and it became this just vapor living this life of when this happens or if this happens, then I'll be happy. Or when that happens, then I'll be peaceful or I'll be whole. All of a sudden it kind of, the the bottom fell out. And I was like, man, you know, I don't know if I was depressed, but I was like, well, if these things don't make me happy or content or peaceful, what will? And that's when I was like, I need to do something. I need to figure something out and maybe try a different path because what I've been doing for the last, you know, three decades hasn't been getting me where I think I want to go. So you're sitting there at that, pouring that coffee on that Tuesday morning and all that starts to hit you. I'm imagining it's not just in your intellect, it's in your body. It's a sensations coming. What do you, what do you do with that? What happens next? Yeah. I mean, I, I was pretty shut down emotionally, all of my intellect, my head, and definitely the body. You know, I used to you know, hammer my body. I love to suffer. You know, it, it hurts so good, you know, kind of thing. Both in the corporate world, but also running. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Like in the corporate world, I'm like, I'll outwork you. I'll work harder. Every night was kind of a school night. I wouldn't really go out. I wouldn't be very social because I was all focused about work or sport and just kind of lived, you know, not monk by any means, but a very kind of alone life. You know, I have friends and married, divorced, have had other relation, intimate relationships, but, you know, quite a solo person. So what happened next was I just started looking for things that I could kind of, you know, lean into to maybe try to answer some of these questions I had. 
And I had a few people very close to me recommend the Hoffman process. And they said, yeah, this is something that one had done it. I think another one had heard about it. And they said, this is something that might really interest you. And I was like, all right, I'm in, let's go. And I had no clue, frankly, what it was. I did some research here and there, but I was like, yep, let's do it. You know, why not go to California for a week, go off the grid, sleep in, <laughs> go, you know, I didn't know, run in the mountains, do some yoga, sit on a cushion. Sounds great. So I signed up. This is early 20 and COVID hit. So it took me eight to 10 times of cancellations to go. So a, a full year. So, so you mean they re-register you, you're in a class and yet that one is still canceled again. Over and over and over again. I was like best friends with the office staff there. This back and forth. Nope. This one's canceled. Next one canceled. Next one. I was like, I'll go to California. I'll go to Connecticut. I need, you know, 12 hours heads up. I will be on a plane and I'm in. So that just kept pushing and pushing. And that was hard because I, I've kind of held this as a, the magic pill, you know, or, or solution. Like, oh, if I go to this, then I'll be better. Then I'll be fixed. Then I'll know the way. I'll have the playbook. I, I remember one time, you know, we were on the track running and before the workout started and I got a call from James that the next one had canceled. And I remember crying, like just literally walking around that track, having tears come down, just like so at the end of my rope, because I just wanted something. I wanted a solution. Eventually I got in and I went in April of 21. And COVID had, was starting to come out. There were still quite small classes. It was a group of 19, three coaches. And yeah, I didn't know what I was getting into. I do remember like doing the homework was quite, quite intense for me um, or the pre, you know, pre-work. And I had done it multiple times or had revisited it because I, you know, a year later kind of hit it again. And, you know, there's a lot in there about childhood that wasn't easy for me because I didn't remember much of my childhood. You know, my childhood had been a slideshow of snapshots that were good, you know, positive, you know, Christmas or this with my brother or my sister or my parents. But I don't remember much of my childhood. And I just thought that was normal or didn't really think about it, you know? So doing that, that homework was like, okay, this is interesting. What's going to happen here? We had a pre-meeting, I don't, you know, one-on-one pre-meeting with Regina, who was my um, small group coach. And uh, I remember, you know, popping on the Zoom and there was Regina and she said, you know, hello, how you doing? And I, I don't even think I could answer because I just kind of lost it again. She just said, you're ready. I'll see you soon, Bobby. And so it was quite short, but very, very impactful and meaningful. And I felt like, okay, I'm ready for this. You know, I'm definitely anxious and scared not scared, but nervous, but also excited for the process. So you arrive, what happens? I arrive on a Friday night. I you know, get out of my Uber. And the first thing that happened was I realized that my, my phone was left in the Uber and back to San Francisco. So that's how I started, you know, and you know, you don't have your phones there. So I was like, okay, that's one way to just drop in. And the staff there was great. Like we'll deal with it. I was like, I don't even care. Here I am. So First night was, you know, the cafeteria, meeting some people, kind of like summer camp, right? You're like, who's who and what are you trying to do? Just, you know, all types. And, you know, next, I remember walking into the 
the uh, lodging, you know, we called it cell block C or D. I remember opening the door thinking I'm at some boutique hotel and it's it's not that. And it was uh, super, super sparse. And I was like, ah, oh, this is perfect. Like just everything about it was perfect. A bed, a lamp, a chair, nothing else. And I was like, this, this is great. Next day, walk in to the group, take our seats. And this is where it really hit me. You know, we had to introduce ourselves kind of one by one. I'm an introvert very much so, but I'm quite comfortable talking in front of people and got to my turn and I could barely get out my name and why I was there. And I was just emotional. Like it just hit me. And I remember talking about how I am breaking or I am broken in the sense that I have been driving so hard for so long and very robotic and the gears are grinding. I'm breaking and I need help. I need to figure out how, how to change the path I'm on because it's not getting me to where I want to go. And then the first few days, I remember, I mean, just these waves of emotion, just like waves on a beach. Just I would sit there and it might be completely off topic of what, you know, was happening. And I would just get hit with emotion and just ball, like just uncontrollable but the most soothing, relaxing, comforting tears and emotions. It just felt so good. When I look back now, it's because I felt safe and I felt seen. I remember Regina the first day looked at me. We were doing this, this exercise and she's like, I see you and I love you. And I was like, what are you talking, you know, just so uncomfortable. Like that, that did not sit well with me. But then quickly it's like, yes, these people see me and love me and I see them and love them for who they are. No judgment. I don't care what you do, where you're from, how you got here. You are perfect as you are. And that gave me the permission and the, the space to feel safe. Um, and something that, again, in hindsight, I don't think I've felt safe a lot of my life. And I've had a lot of stress and anxiety that I have carried with me for, for decades that I never knew I had. I think I really helped other men there specifically be vulnerable. I didn't even know what vulnerable really meant. I knew what the definition was, but I didn't know how it felt until the Hoffman process. I didn't know what shame felt like or meant, but I, now I know what shame is all about. Those first few days and going through those exercises and that work with a group was transformational. In doing that, I was able to kind of dig into some of my childhood stuff that, again, is big, big, big blanks. But all of a sudden, I'm like, oh, yeah. Like, you know, came from upper middle class Pennsylvania. I'm the youngest of three quite a bit. My brother, who had passed away actually in 2019. So that was another piece that kind of had come up. My dad passed away many years ago at 66. My brother had passed away in July of 19 at 55, both from heart attacks. So all of a sudden I was the last Africa, you know, on the tree. And so that was also a piece of who am I? Why am I here? This legacy, if you want to call it that, is kind of, I'm it. There was like, all of a sudden, like, you know, we are fragile. I'm not indestructible. And, you know, a lot of those, those feelings came up through this. But in, in these exercises, I started to look at my childhood and say, wow, my childhood was difficult. 
I had never thought about that. It was so locked away and shut down. I just never even gave it a nod. And I'm like, oh yeah, that little boy, you know, five, six, seven years old, hiding under the kitchen table as dad has, you know, my brother in a headlock putting holes in the drywall and my, you know, mom yelling and my sister screaming or crying and, you know, me running out of the house to hide because I didn't feel safe. Okay. Yeah. That's not, that's not okay. I'm not blaming my parents. I, I really understand what they were in and all of that, but just starting to dig into those kind of situations that made me realize that I had a really, you know, call it small T, big T, whatever you want, some difficult times as a kid. And I had locked all those away and shut them away and just never even shine light into that darkness. So started to really understand, oh, okay, I felt unsafe. I felt like I lived on eggshells. And then it was, my parents were retailers, so they owned stores, they're never around, not much. They were working all the time and raised by a nanny. My brother and sister were seven and nine years older, so different generations, and I was alone. You know, I was raised by a nanny, and it's like, oh, no one's around. No one sees me. It's like, what about me? Do people see me? Do they know I'm here? So I was the good student. I really did great in school. I was a great athlete, walking over from middle school to high school to, to play on the varsity team, hockey and soccer, but they didn't see me. So I was like, oh, okay, if I'm really good, they don't see me. Or no one gives me the time of day, leaves me alone. Am I not important? Am I not worthy? Am I not enough? And then it's like, okay, I'll be the bad kid. You know, then it was sex, drugs, and rock and roll in eighth grade, doing stuff that's way off the rails for anyone in eighth grade, just doing things that you sh should not be doing at that age. And that didn't get anyone's attention. They didn't see me at all either. So I just really started to understand like, wow, I, I was not seen. And that translated into I'm not loved or I'm not lovable. I'm not worthy. I'm not enough, which then manifested itself in me driving hard for decades to be to be worthy, to be free, you know, to be somebody, to be something. And so you're sort of putting all of this together during the week through the experiences. Yeah, through the exercises, the experiences, the visualizations, the conversations, these you know, layers of an onion are falling away. So I'm starting to have this awareness and understanding of what a pattern is and seeing how that is congruent with how I live my life and the things I've been doing and things that have not been serving me well. And, you know, a lot of the patterns do serve you well. I've done a lot of very cool things and have achieved a lot, but they wear out. It's time to change them and move on from things that no longer serve you. They actually hurt me in many ways and hurt people around me. So, yeah, in the process, that awareness and understanding and acknowledgement of all of that really came to light. So, Bob, I want to ask about the movement of that, because it can be scary and painful to go to those places that you tried so hard to avoid as you grew up, and those painful places of being unworthy, of shame, and you had a felt sense of it, as you said. So, as the week went on, were you able to move through it, and was there a moment in time when the work you had done yielded results of getting to the other side? Yeah, there was quite a few moments. I mean, I, I tell people like the first two days, I was like, how do I get out of here? 
I'm not sure I can manage seven, eight days a year. By day four, I was like, I never want to leave. And by like day seven, I'm like, I can totally see how people are monks and, you know, sit in monastery all day. So there was a, a big transition through the week, being in community there and working through my things. And as people held space for me, and then me in turn holding space for others, that was really powerful because it was like, we're rowing this boat together. We're not just adrift. Like we are making progress and getting better kind of brick by brick. And that was very powerful for me to be able to do with others and to be seen and see and accept, you know, you're exactly where you're meant to be and you're perfect as you are. That was really helpful for me. You know, I recall, you know, there's little trails to and from the, the mess hall and, I used to always take the trail versus the road because I like the dirt. And I remember, you know, walking back, I don't know, second, third day and just being at such peace and contentment and presence and feeling, I wouldn't say like happy, but content. And content to me is brilliant and that's peaceful. And I didn't feel that anxiety or stress. I felt safe. I felt open. I felt like I didn't have to be someone or, you know, something because I felt that's what I needed to be. I could just be Bobby. That was powerful. And that just gave me kind of license or encouragement or momentum to keep going, keep digging in. And wow, this, you know, kind of get that flywheel going and that momentum. And it's that flywheel hasn't stopped since, you know, I mean, there's definitely wobbles, speed wobbles here and there, but it's not always easy by any means. And it kicked that flywheel off and um, it's something that will continue to turn for the rest of my life. So you move to the end of the week and then after your process, what happened near the end of the week and in the days following? I remember being sad leaving, you know, it was hard. You know, one of our coaches had talked about, you know, you, you're probably walking out of here at a seven, eight, nine, you know, zero to 10, seven, eight, nine. And you maybe walked in at two, three, four, which was fair for me. But, you know, life is five, six, seven, you know? So trying to really manage that kind of pendulum of, of where you sit, you know, you can't have peaks without valleys kind of thing. And that was helpful for me to understand because like you want to walk out and just hold on to that, but that's not realistic. But also understanding that, you know, this idea that, you know, the seed, the seed was just planted. Like now it has just begun and you've, you know, you've been able to kind of look behind the veil a little bit of what is possible. And in my case, shine a bit of light into something that was very, maybe is and was very dark, but it's okay to do so. And when you do that, you heal and it's hard, but you know, sometimes it's cutting edge, sometimes it's bleeding edge, but in that is where the real work is done and the awareness happens. And for me, the healing, healing happens. So Bob, you're having a, a meta experience as you describe. So it isn't just about the work you're doing and the healing that's going on for you, but you have a larger sense of this is the trajectory of growth. This is how I'm healing. This is what healing looks like. Yeah looks like and feels like and the work it takes it's not linear you know there's no finish line there's no rule book i didn't even know healing was needed you know that's how shut down and locked out i was 
I didn't know there was a little Bobby. I didn't know little Bobby felt the way he felt. I didn't know little Bobby had to deal with the things he had to deal with. It was just so shut down. So being able to, to kind of open that up and recognize that, you know, that vulnerability, you know, that's one thing that I think, you know, tender was my word there, which, you know, the week before tender would not have showed up, you know, just no way that would have been weak or soft or, and now it's like classic, you know, strength and vulnerability, but I've walked away way more tender and way more vulnerable. It feels really good, you know, and it's allowed me to have much more grace and love for myself, give myself a break for my daughter to really, I think, be a much better parent, better friend. Intimate relationships have always, you know, again, I've learned now, I can understand that intimate relationships are trigger for me. I've felt unsafe in them and have, you know, kept people at arm's length for my entire life. So before we go there, I just want to ask, what was the advice? Because it sounds like it was so successful for you, just in a kind of evaluatory way. What was the advice your friends gave you about, I know you had two friends and they give you two pieces of advice. What was that? One friend had gone and he wasn't one that had recommended it, but he heard, I talked to him that I was going and his advice was go all in and get ready to embrace the weird. And I was like, huh, okay. But that was very sound advice because there's some things along the week that I would typically shy away from or not lean into. And I kept saying, just lean in. The more you give, the more you get. And that was very true. So lean in. And the more you, more you give, the more you get. You, that was your self-talk. Yep. Who cares what people think? We were all in it together. And, you know, amazing group of people that I was meant to be there with those people. You know, those eight or 10 cancellations were meant to happen for a reason. I was meant to, you know, work with Crystal and Ian and Regina, who I still work with them to this day. We have a great Hoffman group. We did a reunion, which was kind of Q2-esque, you know, a year later, which was amazing. About 10 of us got together. But yeah, there was uh, leaning in there and going all in on all the exercises was, you just, it gets better and better and better. So one of my favorite experiences was play with, you know, 20 others, you know, adults have the most enjoyable, pure, authentic time of play together was extremely powerful because I realized I felt safe. And it goes back to that idea of being safe. It was just an amazing experience. The lack of safety in your childhood and the safety you felt at Hoffman in contrast. Yeah. I am safe in day to day, of course, but carrying with me this idea that I'm not safe or carrying with me the emotions and tensions and reactions that I've carried since little Bobby felt unsafe with me and being able to understand, okay, these are patterns. I can see them coming up. I can understand where they come from now. I mean, just to understand what it is that it even is a pattern or a reaction, then be able to tie that back to like, oh, okay, this goes back to a time I didn't even look at or understand. And just being able to tie all that together has been able to inform how I live today much, much better. Beautiful. 
Beautiful. The the rewards of the work were immediate and visceral. Okay, so you come back into life. You do not become a monk, and instead you embrace the world post-process, and you began to talk about experiencing some of the benefits of it, the changes, and yet you were about to reference relationships and intimate partnerships, and what happens? Yeah, I mean, I, I came back, and it is a integration. You know, you long for what it, what you had there and what it was, but you have to understand it's, it, will, it will probably never be that, but you can still carry that with you. My life, you know, it's not radically different, but there's things that are, that came back and I'm historically, I would go, 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 right? Like I would just go in my life, go work, go sport, hard, hard, hard. I remember as a kid, it's a Sunday night and I'm like, let's go to Turkey Hill, which is like the Pennsylvania version of, of 7-Eleven. My mom's like, why? I just always had to go. You know, I wanted to just keep moving and moving and moving. And Regina used to always say, Bobby, slow it down, slow it down. And so I came back with, you know, that mantra, you know, kind of from her, slow it down. And I realized that I went because I was, I didn't want to sit still because I didn't want to feel, or I didn't want to have the space to think or to reflect. So post-process, the TV is not on in the background. You know, I'm not filling the space with things all the time. You know, I have a morning routine that is an hour-ish that includes a quad check and includes some journaling and some meditation, but just some space and time to slow down and be with myself and my feelings and the quadrinity. That was something I've never done before. And I realized because I was, I didn't like what I felt or I was scared of it, or it felt bad. And now it's like, oh, it's okay to feel bad. I see that with parenting. My daughter's down and out. Like, instead of trying to fix it, hey, it's, it's okay. Yeah, that must, that must hurt. I bet that hurts. And also that juxtaposition, I can be sad and hopeful. Again, it's not linear, but like, oh yeah, I can be frustrated and I can be joyful. All these emotions are not good or bad. They are. That has been a big shift for me. So yeah, slow it down, space. It's not easy. You know, there's a lot of days where are really hard and there's times where I'm like, oh man, ignorance is bliss. If I wouldn't have never done that, I'd still be this robot. And, you know, I, you know, I definitely flip back and forth there to this day. Even being asked to be on this podcast is like, why me, right? I'm just a nobody. I'm a ghost in the machine, but we've all got our stories and we've all got our paths. And mine is probably not that uncommon. And it has changed my life. It's been transformational. But I still struggle. You know, one thing that has come out of it is that I was able to continue to have the tools and courage to keep looking at things in my life and keep trying to understand and unpack patterns, et cetera. And like I said, I, I've always kept people at arm's length because I feel I have felt safer alone. I have felt safer reliant on myself. I have felt safer, even where I live in the foothills above Boulder. Is this introversion or is this me trying to be safe? And those are things I'm thinking about. And, you know, I continue to unpack some other things in my childhood. When I was in that bad boy stage going down the wrong path, I was like, I need to get out of here. Because if I don't get out of here, I'm going to end up in a place I don't want to be if I even make it. 
And so I went to a boarding school and had the opportunity to kind of leave the town I was living in and kind of reinvent myself, went to a boarding school. There, I had some really difficult moments and my boundaries were crossed multiple times by a person that was in a place of authority that was supposed to be my proctor, my dorm dad, my teacher, my guardian, and did things that shouldn't have happened. And things that I had just, again, had shut away and ran away from that school, you know, was there for just about two years and it burnt down. I don't know the specifics, but I can imagine why it was set on fire and the school closed. And I was able to go to a different school up in Vermont, boarding school, which was a phenomenal experience. But that experience at that boarding school, there was some sexual abuse and massive manipulation, massive mindfuck. And I just ran away from it and ran away to Vermont. And, and that has been my pattern, you know, run away from things, you know, be alone, be by yourself, be safe. And then connecting intimacy with ugliness, intimacy with shame, intimacy with pain. And those are the things I'm working through now, even to sit here and have this conversation. It's not not easy, but it is extremely vulnerable. I was going to ask, how are you doing as you talk about this? I kind of have to go in the robot mode to just, just to let it rip. So a little, a little bit of healthy disconnecting as you tell it. Yeah. But I've learned like vulnerability is the antidote to shame. You know, so the more vulnerable I am, and you know, it's close cousin courage, <laughs> the more I can rise above. I'm not at the place where it's like, oh, it didn't happen to me. It happened for me. That doesn't work for me, but it has happened to me and it is part of my story and is part of who I am. And now I have the awareness and understanding of how different chapters of my story impact who I am today and impact how I relate to myself and those around me. And by no means is it, am I, you know, through, but I have the understanding and awareness more so than ever to be able to do the work. You didn't name sexual abuse as a pattern in the process, the patterns that come from it. That wasn't something you worked with. No, I didn't put in my homework. I didn't speak to it, but it, you know, it was there. It was in me, but I, I wasn't ready to let it come up. And maybe it just took a moment to get there because it was brick by brick. I think it speaks to the power of the work in the process and the momentum you talked about of actually paying dividends post-process so that you have the courage and the capacity and the will to look at things and metabolize the pain and the shame of all of that so you can continue your healing journey even though you're not at the process. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, again, as it goes back to that, there's proof, right? You put the time in. Or you do some of the work and it has the dividends, right? There's, there's a payback. You chip away at it. You know, you might not ever get through in this lifetime, but you keep chipping away. I feel better about it. I feel better for it. You know, when we did that reunion, 
is when the kind of sexual abuse stuff really popped up. We were doing an elevators exercise with a couple others who at this point I've had a relationship for a year with. So we all had the same experience. We all had similar experiences, I should say. And it's like, wow, me too. Me too. So this elevator tool used to help people uncover patterns in their childhood, you're doing it in a group and it's a a self experience. So it's within you, but there are other people on that same visualization. And afterwards in the sharing, this similar experiences of sexual abuse came up amongst the men in it. What was that like? I mean, it was powerful. I mean, one of the gentlemen, you know, talked to his story and then it gave me license or permission or more comfort to also tell mine because we're in it together and there's no judgment and there's no criticism, there's nothing but love and support. Yeah, that was powerful. And it's sad too. It's sad, clearly, you know, this, this stuff should not be happening. But if I don't continue to work through it or don't continue to process it, I would be doing myself and those around me a disservice. Living a life that, an existence that's not, that's not authentic, I guess, or just tarnished, just held back. And, and now I, there's still lots of things I can do better and I, better decisions. And I'm by no means perfect. You know, there is no, <laughs> there is no magic pill here, but there is a, a path you know, right road, left road. And I, I recognize the difference between the two and I recognize why you can get pulled to one versus the other. And then I can do something with that versus just being blind, you know, sleep at the wheel, literally for, for years. And it allows me to be compassionate and empathetic for me and others. And with relationships, I believe I am much, much more vulnerable and much more open. And when I do that, what comes back is just that, this vulnerable, courageous connection and love. So my relationships have been so much better and so much more meaningful. And I look forward to continuing to, to lean into that and have a richer, more full, meaningful life versus that shut down, stoic, grinding of gears, you know, stuck person. What else would you say about your life post-process and integrating and practicing this authentic right road, Bobby? That I am worthy, that I am lovable. And when you say that, those aren't just words. Like you have an embodied sense of that, I can see. Yeah, they are not just words. I struggle with it. A lot, back and forth. The tension remains, but I have a much better understanding of that there is even a tension, where it comes from, and how to help manage that. I realize I don't have to prove anything to anyone. I don't have to achieve anything, win anything, or earn anything, or whatever that may be, that as I am, I am whole. That is powerful. And it's exciting. It really is. Because it gives me a, a lens to a world that I didn't know existed. And yeah, I sit here right now and just feel 
peaceful. I feel content. I wish I could have worked through some of these things much, much earlier. I just turned 50. So I have some regret, but remorse around that. Like, wow, did I get cheated out of, or did I lose years or moments or relationships? And sure, I I did. I have, but I have to honor what happened and where how I got here and focus on my energy into, you know, right now, right here. And things are good. You know, that idea of slowing down has been has been crucial for me. You know, as you say that, I think about your Instagram handle of Too Fast Africa. And and the irony that, that Regina's words to you over and over again were slow down, Bobby. Slow it down, Bobby. Yeah, and by, by slowing down and doing this work, I've been given the gift of looking into my past, understanding my past, begin healing my past, and probably more importantly than anything is make peace with my past and just be like, that is my story. And it sounds like you get to rewrite it. Yeah. I feel like it's kind of, and not a midlife, I always say not a midlife crisis, but a midlife awakening. You know, I feel like I have woken up and I'm no longer asleep at the wheel. And that is a, that is a gift. I get to share that with others too, which is also very rewarding and gratifying. I know you're beginning to do that with CEOs and, and people in the corporate world sharing your story. What's it like to tell your story here today for this podcast? I have told my story, you know, leadership groups and others. And when I've told it, you don't know what to expect. And what has come of it is that people come up and connect. They're me too, or it's that healing in community. It has been very powerful. So it's, it's healing for me, but also to, if I can benefit others by like, hey, it's okay to crack it open. It's okay to shine some light into the darkness. It's okay to look someplace that you've never looked before. And then to see how that pebble drops in that pond, and then another pond, another pond, and we're all in it together. So I, I've really enjoyed working with, you know, all types. And, you know, you talk about leadership and you talk about P&Ls and cash flows, but ultimately you end up talking about vulnerability and you talk about working with people and it comes back to family and love and support and understanding people relating to to your failures, not your successes. That's been really rewarding because it's just that, that idea of vulnerability and tenderness. Tender, tender feels good. There's that word. Bob, for, for your tenderness throughout this episode, I'm so grateful. So grateful. Thank you. I am grateful for you, Drew, for creating this space and opportunity and the work you do and you know the work you've done with me. I'm very grateful for that and the process and all, all those that are involved in it. And I appreciate myself for showing up today. You can feel that, can't you? How's it feel? Feels great. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Onward and upward. Let's go. Thank you, Bob. Thank you. Thank you for listening to our podcast. My name is Liza Ingrassi. I'm the CEO and president of Hoffman Institute Foundation. And I'm Raz Ingrassi, Hoffman teacher and founder of the Hoffman Institute Foundation. 
Our mission is to provide people greater access to the wisdom and power of love. In themselves, in each other, and in the world. To find out more, please go to hoffmaninstitute.org.